Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. My voice is so tired still. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to try not to cough into anyone's ear. So. That's, that's good. We need to set up, uh, like... I wish there was a way. We, I want to set up a cough button. Oh. Like, because I know that I sniff a lot, and I hate having to go back and edit those out. Oh, I just have, like, the worst bronchial of whatever the fuck infection. I don't know what's going on. It won't <laughs> seem to go away. Yeah. But, you know, here I am. It's been two weeks. I missed one week because of s- traveling. And then I missed Yeah, you the were next in New York? Week. Was that? Well, one week I was going to Ashley's. Ah, you were in Chicago. That's that right. That was last week. Wasn't it? I've lost track. I don't know. Time all runs together. I missed two weeks, and for a solid week of that, I have had the worst freaking, like, chest cold, and it's not been fun. So, but I'm here, and I'm recording. I just, I'm glad I'm not reading, because I would not be able to do a lot of voices today. Yeah. <laughs> but you are vertical, which is a huge improvement over vertical. a couple of days ago. I even did some laundry <laughs> and, like, ate some real food. So, yeah, I'm here. Hi, everybody. I hope you enjoyed all the pooing. <laughs> Two weeks of solid pooing is solid is poo. cleansing. Yes, it's cleansing. It gets you ready for the next bout of insanity. I really hope somebody's listening to this that has no idea what the fuck we're talking about right now. It's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. So if you're a first time listener, and if we're doing our job right, every episode is somebody's first episode. Uh, we just spent the last two weeks pooing. And by pooing, we mean when I am not available or we have like a really crazy week or something. Ken reads short stories um, about Pooh Bear. He doesn't just make fart noises into the microphone. No. <laughs> well, no, I guess no. I guess I haven't listened to them, so maybe <gasps> he does. What? I have been in bed, <laughs> though I did watch the entire entirety of season three of Dead to Me <laughs> in one sitting. Um, yeah. Because... Damn, it's good. So it was a good season. Yeah. Um, yeah. So no, I do. I just read Winnie the Pooh. Although I did read both uh, the both of the last two weeks. I did read from the toilet so that I didn't have to take a break <laughs> from pooing to poo if I needed to. Oh wow, that's that's multi talented. You should yeah. have that on your resume under special skills. Yeah. I can read and poop at the same time. Yeah, I mean that takes <laughs> that takes concentration. That takes multi like that's like you got to use multi. You got to use your diaphragm and your like. Your intestinal muscles. I mean, that's a lot of that's a well, lot of work. Really, if you're supporting solidly from the diaphragm, you're getting some push in both directions. Yeah, so. I mean, but that's that's impressive. Thank you, thank yeah. you. I do. I I aim to impress um, <laughs> with every horrifying image that I allow to escape from your mouth. <laughs> yes, hello. From my mouth or my bum or your bum while you're reading Pooh Bear. <laughs> <laughs> So what do you think? Have we have we made enough poop jokes to move on to the next part of the show? Are there ever enough? But I guess I guess yeah, because we're gonna move on to another part of the show, which is not about pooing; it's about clowning. 
Yeah. It's about. Can we connect those somehow? Pooing and uh, booing. I don't. They, clowns don't. Sca- well, clowns scare me. Clowns but. scare some people, <laughs> and clowns get booed if they're not they good. They do get booed. They get the hook. Yeah. So from pooing to booing. To pooing to booing. On to uh, the segment that has nothing to do with what we actually do on this podcast that we continue to do called Clown Corner. <laughs> So this week I'm doing a pretty short one, um, but I I read it and I couldn't stop laughing. So I said, this is what we're doing. Great. So I'm calling this the Great Wall of China Peen. Good. (laughs) During China's Zhao Dynasty, and I'm I'm sure it may be Shu Dynasty, Z-H. I, Zhu? I am Zhu Dynasty. I usually think of ZH I don't want to say Zhu. The Zhu Dynasty sounds sound, weird, but <laughs> I have no idea. Zhu. I, I I've never taken an Eastern language or have any familiarity with it. So, well, hang on. Is it? It's Z H O U. Chow. Chow. Joe. No. Chow. 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 All right, the Zhao Dynasty, um, and this was back way back, way back when, when the emperor was Qin Xing Hang Ti. Yes, again, yep. I apologize. This was the leader who was ordering the building of the Great Wall of China. If, Great. If we want, if you want context to when this is, I mean, this is BC era, y'all. Great Wall of China. Great Wall of China. Now, this this emperor. Had a clown or a jester, as we talked about a few weeks ago, um, and he employed a clown named Yu Shi. Again, I apologize. Uh, who became one of China's most famous court jesters? So he was he was very very was popular, very very like very trusted by um, the um, the emperor and uh, the uh, hierarchy of China. So the Great Wall was a very expensive project, as I assume you can de- you can sure. decipher. Um, not only financially, but it was also very, very dangerous. A lot of uh, human lives were being lost when yeah. it was being built um, because there was really no safety regiment back then for those things. And a lot of the people that were being used were, you know, the uh, the poor and the and like uh, they were using prisoners and stuff like that. So yeah, OSHA wasn't really around protecting people twenty five hundred no. years ago. No, and even with OSHA around, we saw how successful Trump's wall was. <laughs> I don't think people were dying building it. No, but people are literally like climbing through it. it has, oh, it has no like. <laughs> yeah, no, wildly unsuccessful. Wildly unsuccessful. Um, whereas I don't think you can climb over the Great Wall of China. I mean, you can. You can. But it it's more like climbing the wall in, like, Game of Thrones. Yeah. It's like, no, you can I mean, do it. You just, you better be trained. You better um, be trained. Also, when they were, like, building it, it was manned by dudes with bows and yeah, shit. Yeah, that's like, true. you're going to get shot off while you're... That's true. Anyway. Well... While it was being built, this new emperor has decided that his new the, the the wall is not pretty enough, and it wants to be whitewashed. So they want to like basically Tom Sawyer the shit out of this. Great, thing. yeah, we want a pretty wall. Gotcha. <laughs> we want it to be pretty, not just stone. We want it to like like glimmer. Um, so this would have cost thousands of lives, and this would have taken forever. So no one at court was willing to say this to the emperor, except his trusted jester. So the jester was it's feeling very the emperor has no clothes, right? Yes, yeah. very much. Um, and I, there is a part of me that wonders if this has anything to do with it. But like 
no one wanted to question him because, like, they were literally either be sent to the wall to help do this right. and most likely die, or they would just be sent to die because you don't question. This was a time you did not question authority. This is very Joffrey, very Joffrey times in uh, in Westeros. So his court jester, Yushi, comes forward and is like, probably not a great idea, showed the displeasure, and the way he did this was by going to the Great Wall and painting a giant penis on the wall I, with the whitewash. Y- <laughs> yes. I'm not kidding right now. He just graffitied a giant <laughs> dick. He <just laughs> graffitied a giant dick on the wall. So this is how he basically was like, no, the whitewashing is unnecessary. Let me show you what some whitewashing looks like. Here I'm going to show you how stupid the white paint looks. Here is a painting of my peen on the Great Wall of China. So he was whipped for this, even though he was, you know, he was very much loved and uh, appreciated. He was whipped for this act of, quote, self-expression. The emperor threatened further punishment, and the further punishment he threatened was making him paint the wall himself. But Yushi explained that he was the wrong clown for the job because he's colorblind. (laughs) So somehow he got out of this. That's a good joke. And news of the confrontation spread, causing the country to laugh at the emperor. And the emperor, in tune, decided not to have the wall painted. Well, plus, like, if the clown gets out of it by saying, I'm colorblind, suddenly you're going to have a rash of people claiming, oh, I'm colorblind, I don't know what paint to use. Basically, this clown, like, fucking... Uh, it, embarrassed the crown or the emperor so much that he was like, okay, we're just not going to do it. I'm over it. And it was all because a clown painted a penis on a wall. (laughs) So So when you see out on the street, someone has spray painted a penis onto a wall or to the teachers who I know listen to this because we have a disturbing number of teachers who listen to this podcast. When your students have doodled a penis (laughs) on the top of their paper, it's not graffiti and it's not offensive. It is a protest. That is a protest, (laughs) y'all, which I would argue it is every time. (laughs) I, I do remember when I was in Serbia and this is very old, like all the buildings are very old stone. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some new buildings, but a lot of it is very old. It's a very old cult, uh, country culture area. Um, there was a surprising amount of dicks graffitiing on things. Like oh. we commented on it all the time. Like the group I was there studying with, we were like, what's with all the penises? And now I know. Dicks are <laughs> universally funny. They're universal. They just fu- are. Like no matter who has a can of paint. Yeah. A dick is what you paint. <laughs> dick or boobs, but boobs are harder to like make look like funny. Or the word hello. Everybody does hello, scratches hello into things. Yeah. There's probably a psychological reason for that. Who I'm sure knows? it's I'm it's sure like, it's we're just desperately trying to make a connection so we say hello yeah. to the wall. Yeah. But so that is the story of the Great Wall of China Peen. And so next time somebody flashes me on the subway in New York, I'll just have to remember that's not a penis. It's a political protest. Now, that's different. Showing your <laughs> actual peen to anybody is a different. That is that is called you're going to get arrested. I say if you want to show your peen, paint it. Use your, your artistic expression. And then it's art and you not hear that, harassment. Florida? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you hear that, Florida? <laughs> yeah. But yes, so that is that story. That is Clown Corner this week. Who knew that when I Googled weird clown facts or whatever I Googled this week, that that would come up? Thank you for joining us in this week's Clown Corner, The Adventure of the Red-Nosed Penis. Yeah. Hey, there it is. Um, so that's that. Yay. Yay. Uh, so that was Clown Corner, our happy little recurring segment. But no, it's on to what we actually do with this podcast. Uh, as I said at the beginning, this is a literary comedy podcast where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Basically what that means is each week we take turns reading short stories that we pull out of the public domain. We cold read them for you, dear listeners, and we laugh at all the stupid shit that happens along the way because sometimes when you are reading a story for the first time, uh, you fuck things up. Or there's really funny words. Or there's strange words. Or there's... <laughs> or poop jokes. Poop jokes. Yeah. Or penis jokes. Or <laughs> That's what we do. I racism. Mean, we, we have really covered all that we do already in this podcast. You've got, now, you, now you've told them what we do. Yeah. We started with poo. The whole clown corner was about peens. Now we're like... All right. This is like... This is just like clear cut campfire classics. Yeah. You know what? This is actually a good one to start with. This is. Hey, dear listener... Um, so, uh, this, I, I'm, I'm going to talk shop for a minute here. Uh, the way podcasts succeed and do well is by getting, uh, more listeners. The more listeners we get, the more listeners share it and the happier we are and the more likely we are to continue doing cool stuff. So if you enjoy Campfire Classics, Please just tell someone that you enjoy it. Share it with a friend. Share it on social media. That helps us out a ton when people share these episodes. And you know what? Go ahead and start with this one. Say, hey, this was a good episode to start with. I hope. We haven't gotten to the I end yet. We, haven't, we have no <laughs> idea what this story is going to be. This could be the most depressing story that we've ever read. But, but you know. the first... <laughs> 13 minutes or so were a good episode to start with. Minus so, I'm not singing. I haven't sung any songs yet. I guess I'll have to figure it out. That's all right. We'll get there. Or we won't. Not everything has to be a musical. I usually start with a song and I can't sing right now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, the, the moral of the story is, hey, share this episode with someone. Tell a friend. Tell a relative. Tell a loved one. Tell your cat. I don't care. Just get someone to listen because yeah. the more people who listen frankly, the happier I am, and the happier I am, the more entertaining I will be for you next week. That's true. All right, so this week we have a story from an author we have not read since episode 32. All right. So, so that it's been was like two way years. back, because we are now solidly into the hundred and middles. Like, yeah, I think we're like, like I think this will be like 142, years. 143, yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, we're up there. So we have not revisited this author, and I was like, I think it's time. All right. So, so time for some fun facts. This week, we'll be reading a story by Edith Wharton. Oh, yeah. So the the story we read of hers before was Miss Mary Pask, mm-hmm. and the title of that episode was called A Gift to Humanity, if mm-hmm. you want to go check that out, um, because I did a lot of the, like, generic fun facts in that one, like, she was born here, and then yeah, she yeah, married yeah. this person, and yada, yada. The most fun fact about her... Um, and then I'll get into what we're doing this week, is she was the first woman to win the Pulitzer. Yes. Um, for the age of innocence. Um, right. Yes. Yeah, I remember that story, Miss Mary Pass. Yeah, that it was, was a really good. fucking wild one. 
So that is a fun fact about her. But my whole thing this week, which has nothing to do with what's going on in my life right now, is success is not always a straight road. So. (laughs) So. Hey, if you can if you can make it personal, do it. Hey, these are just the facts. And I went, well, fuck, this is kind of inspiring. So. She um, had a very interesting childhood, which I'm going to kind of go into, um, but quickly, she did not publish her first novel until she was 40. Okay. She became uh, an extraordinarily extraordinarily productive writer in the time that she had, though. Um, She completed 15 novels, seven novellas, 85 short stories. She published poetry, books on design, travel, literary and cultural criticism, and a memoir. So... And she snuck in two naps. And two naps. Um, and she started, like, in like really, when she was 40 years old. Um, so, I'm 40. Hi. And she's So, it's time for, time for you to start your writing career. Here we go. Well, who knows? All right. So, um, her childhood was very oppressed. So, she had a very rich family. Like, she grew up in a very well-off family. But her mother was a little crazy. Like, okay. her mom was very controlling. Um, they were very uh, straight-laced family. So American children's stories containing any slang were forbidden in her childhood home. Huh. So I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking of fucking what's going on in Florida right now. Yeah. The book bands and stuff. And this is a, So this included authors such as Mark Twain. Sure. Bret Hart, who we right, have covered. Yep. Um, and, and many others. She was allowed to read Louisa May Alcott, which makes sense because uh she came from like uh um that's little women if right. you don't know um their family was pretty well known to be quite religious but they were like uh artsy religious i forget the the name of uh what her family was it was like the enlightenment uh church or whatever hang on i'm going to look it up transcendentalists transcendentalists i just thought of it as i was like as you were looking it up so they were transcendentalists so like they were edgy but like conservative edgy so like and louisa louisa may alcott didn't write in slag she wrote very like very prose proper proper. wharton's favorite was um louis uh lewis carroll's alice in wonderland sure good choice and charles kingsley's the water babies which i don't know but now i'm intrigued so her mother like forbade her from reading all these like very famous novels and stuff so she goes i'm gonna read everything else but novels until the day of my marriage so what she did read was classics, philosophy, history, and poetry in her father's library. Okay. So she would like sneak into her father's library and take out like Milton and Carlyle and Victor Hugo and Thomas More and Lord Byron and you know. Yeah, can't get any fucked up ideas from Lord Byron and Milton. Yeah, but God forbid you read Mark Twain, you stupid, stupid woman. So that kind of backfired. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's what happens when you oppress people, y'all. I'm just going to shout out to what's going on in the world right now. If you tell someone they can't do it, they're going to find a way. I promise you that. So, uh, One of her biographers, she had a couple biographies written about her, described Wharton as having read herself out of old New York. So, because she grew up in New York Mm -hmm. and she basically educated herself past like the aristocracy. Like, she was now way more woke than anybody else in that area. her influences, she still like claims she loved Darwin, she loved Nietzsche, she like was just, she just really filled her mind with everything she could because she loved uh, education. 
But since her mom was like, you can't read these trashy novels, she found a way. I won't let you read Mark Twain. That'll poison your mind. Here's Nietzsche. Right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Here the fuck? you go. Um, so before she was even 15, she had started writing, um, just like in her spare time. Right. She wrote about society mainly, and these were one of her central themes, um, and came from experiences with her parents specifically. Um, now, Edith was very critical of her work, but that's mainly because her mother was very critical of her work. Anytime her mother would read something, she was like, it's not good enough. It's not, you know, it, it, no, 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 no. I was just like a very like condescending figure that versions of her mother, whose name was Lucretia, by the way. <laughs> and if you if you're going to be the bad person in a story, Le- Lucretia should be your name. Lucretia is a good name. Lucretia Jones often appeared in Wharton's fiction. So, um, sounds like a really fun house to grow up in. Yeah, it's almost like it's important to be supportive of your children. It's um, yeah, it's almost like it's not good to tell your your kids no, you can't read that, no, you can't be that, no, you can't you can't express yourself. Yeah, that also reminds me of uh, Paul Bettany's Chaucer in Knight's Tale when yeah. he's he he's talking to the the uh, the people who are screwing him over gambling and he basically says oh don't worry i'll get my revenge i will eviscerate you in fiction yeah yeah which is what she did because uh Mm. she was well known for like lambasting society and like the traditional like life traditional way of living now what's interesting she was went coming out like her coming out party and i covered this in the first episode she got married quite young because that's what you did and like unless she was willing to like run away from home or whatever and that just wasn't she wasn't at that point yet she's like i wait i'll wait till i'm 40 and i'm gonna fuck things up (laughs) so it wasn't until she was 29 so she's married now she's doing the thing that she got her first short story published okay it was mrs man steve's view is what it's called had very little success and it took more than a year to publish another one this was called the fullness of life which followed her like uh european trip she had with a friend okay now she sent this into a publisher the person that published it before and he had some notes and she didn't want to make any edits <laughs> so that just like, no nah, it's good the way it is Thanks. didn't happen and that story along with a ton of others speak about her marriage um she sent another story called Bunner Sisters to Scribers in 1892. And the same guy wrote back and said, it's too long, (laughs) so we can't publish that. So a couple of these stories were believed to have been based on her childhood experience with her mother, and they didn't actually get published, a lot of these, until uh, 1916 when they were included in a collection of hers. So she kept sending them in, sending them in. She visited a friend, wrote a story. She visited another friend, did a thing, wrote a story, wrote a story. A lot of verbal wit, a lot of sorrow. Um, And she kept getting rejected. So she just lost confidence and said, fuck it. I'm going to do travel writing. She's like, clearly this fiction thing isn't, isn't, isn't my bag. And so she's like, I'll be a travel writer. And she started doing that in 1894. Now, remember, this is the first woman to win the Pulitzer, (laughs) y'all. 
1901, Morton wrote a two-act play called The Man of Genius. This play was about an Englishman who was having an affair with his secretary. The play was rehearsed, never produced. Another play in 1901, The Shadow of a Doubt, which also came close to being staged but fell through, um, uh, was actually thought to be lost completely, and it was actually discovered in 2017 and had its world premiere radio adaption broadcast on the BBC in 2018. Oh, cool. Um so she had again. So now she's failed novel, failed short story, failed poetry, failed plays. Uh, she's like, well, shit. Success um, at tra- travel writing, though. Success, uh, she it was paying the bills, you know. Yeah. She continued. She continued. She continued doing her thing, and eventually, di- she did have success. Um, and uh, again, you can go hear all about her success on episode thirty-two. Um, because she wrote The Age of Innocence and that won her the first Pulitzer Prize. Um, by the time she passed away, she, again, she had over like 15 novels, novellas, short stories, published poetry books. I mean, this woman was eclectic despite her mother not wanting her to do anything. <laughs> and despite getting told no a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like, Well, and it sounds like, as is so often the case, once once somebody saw the merit in what she was doing, well, and what it, she, it allowed her to continue to yeah, explore Yeah, and what that. she was doing was controversial at the time because yeah. she was a woman and she was writing, I mean, literally was quoted saying unmasking the truth of like the society and social reforms and all these things. So um, it it was, they the world wasn't ready till they were ready. And, yeah. um, sh- and uh, then they were ready. And that's Edith Wharton. So you're going to read another story from her today that's called The Verdict. And it was first published in 1908. All right. Let's start this fire. Yeah. The Verdict. What? (laughs) By Edith Wharton. This is not a Poirot story. Oh, I just got excited. I mean, you can you make your choices. I believe in you. <laughs> uh, the Verdict by Edith Wharton. I had always thought Jack Gisburn rather a cheap genius, though a good fellow enough, so it was no great surprise to me to hear that in the height of his glory he had dropped his painting, married a rich widow, and established himself in a villa in the Riviera. Though I rather thought it would have been Rome or Florence. Okay, so Jack Gisburn uh, living his life and then found himself a sugar mama. Yes. <laughs> yes. He's like, I'm I'm an artist. And then he goes, you know what? Fuck this. I'm getting a sugar mama. And I'm moving to fucking Italy. Yeah. Or I always think of the Riviera as Mexico because the Mexican Riviera. But that, I'm assuming we're in Europe. Because Rome or Venice, Italian Riviera. Yeah, I'm Italian sure. Riviera. Yeah. French Riviera. Oh, yeah, that might be it. Okay. But the Riviera in yeah. Europe, yeah. The, the European Riviera. Yeah. The height of his glory, that was what the women called it. I can hear Mrs. Gideon Thwing, his last Chicago sitter, deploring his unaccountable abdication. Of course, it's going to send the value of my picture way up. But I don't think of that, Mr. Rickham. The loss is art. 
There's an extra R in the word. <laughs> there is. <laughs> the loss to art is all I think of. The word on Mrs. Thwing's lips multiplied its R's <laughs> as though they were reflected in an endless vista of mirrors. I love that. And it was not only the Mrs. Thwing's who mourned. Had not the exquisite Hermia Croft at the last Grafton Gallery show stopped me before Gisborne's moon dancers to say with tears in her eyes, We shall not look upon its like again? Well, even through the prism of Hermia's tears, I felt able to face the fact with equanimity. Poor Jack Gisborne. The women had made him. It was fitting that they should mourn him. I love this so much. He's like some, like, bachelor artist, like, flipping around London or whatever. And, Chicago. Or, or Chicago. Oh, yeah, so maybe it is the Mexican Riviera. Who knows? This guy's just like, all the women are in love with him. Probably, this guy's like the Pedro Pascal of the time. Like, all the women are just like, oh, my God, he's so good. I can't take it. And he's just like, yeah, I'm your daddy. And then he finds <laughs> a sugared mama and, like, goes away. Like, he's like, and all the women are just like, oh, I love him. <laughs> The women had made him. It was fitting that they should mourn him. Among his own sex, fewer regrets were heard, and in his own trade, hardly a murmur. <laughs> Professional jealousy? Perhaps. If it were, the honor of the craft was vindicated by little Claude Nutley, who, in all good faith, brought out in the Burlington a very handsome obituary on Jack, one of those showy articles stocked with random technicalities that I have never heard, I won't say by whom, compared to Gisborne's painting. And so, his resolve being apparently irrevocable, the discussion gradually died out, and as Mrs. Thwing had predicted, the price of Gisborne's went up. I love that they assume because he got married and moved, he's never going to paint again. <laughs> it sounds like he actually said... He just basically said, I'm done. I'm done, yeah. He's, I've lost my inspiration. I'm going to go lay on the beach. <laughs> or more to the point, I'm rich now. Yeah, Fuck off. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> Painting's hard. <laughs> it was not till three years later that in the course of a few weeks idling in the Riviera, it suddenly occurred to me to wonder why Gisborne had given up his painting. On reflection, it really was a tempting problem. To accuse his wife would have been too easy. His fair sitters had been denied the solace of saying that Mrs. Gisburn had dragged him down, for Mrs. Gisburn, as such, had not existed till nearly a year after Jack's resolve had been taken. Oh. It might be that he had married her since he liked his ease because he didn't want to go on painting, but it would have been hard to prove that he had given up his painting because he had married her. No, it sounds like he gave up painting, and he's like, now time to find a sugar mama. Yep. Let's get on Twitter, or not Twitter, Tinder. <laughs> Either one. I suppose you can date people on Twitter, I too. Guess, I guess you can. I don't know. But you have to be real quick. You only get... Yeah. 
Do you what know there's it, like a, characters? you know there's like a Tinder for rich people that you have to like get. It's like for celebrity dating. That doesn't surprise you me at all. You have to actually get like verified to be on it, and like yeah, it's, it's it makes ridiculous. me sad, but it, it, it doesn't me, yeah. surprise me. There's a I mean there's a like there's a well, farmers, farmers only, only Christian um, mingle. There, yeah, uh, like it's fucking weird. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I think he went on Sugar Mama's R Us and was like, I'm done. I guess we're probably going to find out. I'm guessing is, is there is. Is the R backwards? Sugar Mamas are. Oh, uh, yes, definitely. Oh, definitely. It's definitely got some throwback. It's got some <laughs> vintage uh, nostalgia going on. Of course, if she had not dragged him down, she had equally, as Miss Croft contended, failed to lift him up. She had not led him back to the easel to put the brush into his hand again. What a vocation for a wife. But Mrs. Gisborne appeared to have disdained it, and I felt it might be interesting to find out why. Ooh, it's a mystery. This is a mystery story. (laughs) The desultory life of the Riviera lends itself to such purely academic speculations, and having, on my way to Monte Carlo, caught a glimpse of Jack's balustrated terraces between the pines, I had myself borne thither the next day. I love her words. She uses great words. She writes very long sentences that, very is, long that se- are hard to find the point yeah, of. Yes, very long sentences, but they're very pretty, and all the names are fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> I found the couple at tea beneath their palm trees, and Mrs. Gisburn's welcome was so genial that in the ensuing weeks I claimed it frequently. It was not that my hostess was interesting. On that point, I could have given Miss Croft the fullest reassurance. It was just because she was not interesting, (laughs) if I may be pardoned the bull, that I found her so. For Jack... If I may be pardoned the bull, it's like, don't, I'm not going to do any bullshit here. She's boring, y'all. Yeah. (laughs) That was like the sweetest way to say, no, no bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. Like, if if I can be pardoned for being so blunt, (laughs) it was her total lack lack of of anything interesting that made her so interesting. She was so fucking boring. So I was like, why did he marry her? Nothing interesting happening, and that's what makes it interesting. So she's a character in a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. (laughs) It was just because she was not interesting, if I may be pardoned the bull, that I found her so, for Jack, all his life, had been surrounded by interesting women. They had fostered his art. It had been reared in the hothouse of their adulation, and it was therefore instructive to note what effect the deadening atmosphere of mediocrity, I quote Miss Croft, was having on him. Oh my God. <laughs> wow, this lady's real boring. Well, and Miss Croft is clearly, clearly super has gossipy. Some, she got some opinions about this. I have mentioned that Mrs. Gisburn was rich, and it was immediately perceptible that her husband was extracting from this circumstance a delicate but substantial satisfaction. (laughs) It is, as a rule, the people who scorn money who get most out of it, and Jack's elegant disdain of his wife's big balance enabled him, with an appearance of perfect good breeding, to transmute it into objects of art and luxury. 
To the latter, I must add, he remained relatively indifferent, but he was buying Renaissance bronzes and 18th century pictures with a discrimination that bespoke the amplest resources. Yep, sugar mama through and through. An artist found the sugar mama or the yep. sugar daddy. It's like all the people in New York. And now he's just going around buying every expensive piece of old art he can find. I had find. a friend in New York um, who made it a point when we met that they were going to go to the Wall Street bars every night at like five o'clock and find their husband. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> well, well done. And they're still they they they're still performing because guess what? They had to shit. Yeah. <laughs> they they found I'm not gendering this person or giving them any more than my friend. <laughs> yep. So Yeah. I mean hey if but they succeed. If you have a very specific goal and you take consistent action to make sure that everything you do is working towards that specific goal, odds are eventually you will achieve that goal. Yep. And if your friend's goal was to find some rich Wall Street dude who would support them through their career... And they took those actions little by little, incrementally, to make sure it happened. Well, it's and not surprising. they're still doing both. They're still performing, and they got their rich husband. Oh, I was going to say, they're still performing, and they're still shopping for rich Wall Street no, guys? No, they already did. Like, they kept, they, they kept both. They, right. They, no, no, no. I was just saying, oh, still, so looking for the new model. Oh, no. No, they're good. <laughs> they're they're good. set. Money's only excuse is to put beauty into circulation was one of the axioms he had laid down across the severs and silver of an exquisitely appointed luncheon table when, on a later day, I had again run over from Monte Carlo and Mrs. Gisburn, beaming on him, added for my enlightenment, Jack is so morbidly sensitive to every form of beauty. Now I imagine he's like the kid in uh, American Beauty that's like, the bag, the bag is dancing. Can you see the beauty in the bag dancing? <laughs> Everything I'm picturing right now is uh, a location and or set piece from Murder Mystery. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which the second one's about to come Which out. Which is coming out with a part two. So if Soon. you have not seen part one, jump on Netflix and go watch Murder Mystery. It's oh, so good. <laughs> That's the official Campfire Classics endorsement for this episode. Yeah, go Adam, watch Murder Mystery. Adam Sandler or Jennifer Aniston, if you're listening, we totally support, so you should give it back. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Jack. It had always been his fate to have women say such things of him. The facts should be set down in extenuation. What struck me now was that for the first time he resented the tone. I had seen him so often basking under similar tributes. Was it the conjugal note that robbed them of their savor? No, for oddly enough, it came apparent that he was fond of Mrs. Gisburn, fond enough not to see her absurdity. It was his own absurdity he seemed to be wincing under, his own attitude as an object for garlands and incense. My dear, since I've chucked painting, people don't say that stuff about me. They say it about Victor Grindle, was his only protest, as he rose from the table and strode out onto the sunlit terrace. Oh, someone's bitter. <laughs> someone's bitter or, like, 
pleased that he got out of being that sort of celebrity in the eye. And he's going like, don't say that shit about, that's not me anymore. But clearly he has really good taste. So I think that's what she's saying is he loves beauty. So, um, yeah, I can't tell if he's happy about this or sad about this at at this point. And who the fuck's Victor Grindle? I bet we're going to find out. I glanced (laughs) after him, struck by his last word. Victor Grindle was, in fact, becoming the man of the moment, as Jack himself, one might put it, had been the man of the hour. The younger artist was said to have formed himself at my friend's feet, and I wondered if a tinge of jealousy underlay the latter's mysterious abdication, but no, for it was not till after that event that the Rose de Dubarry... So, uh, maybe it's a, it looks like a, a, a gallery or something. Or someone, a rich person's house. Dewberry sounds like a weird poop. <laughs> it's like dingleberry, but it's a dewberry. It's a, it's a little driplet. <laughs> a dingleberry is the poop that holds on and you gotta shake it off. Uh, a yes. dewberry is like a bloop. <laughs> it's one that drips off. <laughs> Oh, good. Mucus makes me feel funny. (laughs) Mucus makes me feel good. No, that is not true. (laughs) But no, for it was not till after that event that the Rose Dewberry drawing rooms had begun to display their grindles. I turned to Mrs. Gisburn, who had lingered to give a lump of sugar to her spaniel in the dining room. (laughs) Why has he chucked painting? I asked abruptly. Just getting to the point. (laughs) She raised her eyebrows with a hint of good-humored surprise. Oh, he doesn't have to now, you know. I want him to enjoy himself, she said quite simply. I looked about the spacious white-paneled room with its famille verte vases, repeated the tones of the pale damask curtains, and its 18th-century pastels in delicate faded frames. Has he chucked his pictures, too? I haven't seen a single one of those in the house. A slight shade of constraint crossed Mrs. Gisborne's open countenance. It's his ridiculous modesty, you know. He says they're not fit to have about. He sent them all away except one, my portrait, and that I have to keep upstairs. His ridiculous modesty. Jack's modesty about his pictures? My curiosity was growing like the beanstalk. I said persuasively to my hostess, I must really see your portrait, you know. What is going on? She glanced out almost timorously at the terrace where her husband, lounging in a hooded chair, had lit a cigar and drawn the Russian deerhound's head between his knees. <laughs> it's like, um, I'm just going to sit out here and, and mope. <laughs> I'm going to smoke my cigar and scritch my dog's head. Oh, I'm brooding. I'm brooding. I'm an artist. I'm brooding. It's actually a really good way to brood if you're going to. You got a covered chair, a dog head, on a terrace, head, overlooking, on a terrace the overlooking the Riviera. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, if you're gonna brood, that's the way to do it. But like, <laughs> uh, well, come, well, he's not looking. 
she said, with a laugh that tried to hide her nervousness, and I followed her between the marble emperors of the hall and up the wide stairs with terracotta nymphs poised among flowers at each landing. In the dimmest corner of her boudoir, amid a profusion of delicate and distinguished objects, hung one of the familiar oval canvases in the inevitable garlanded frame. The mere outline of the frame called up all Gisborne's past. Mrs. Gisborne drew back the window curtains, moved aside a jardinier full of pink azaleas, pushed an armchair away, and said, If you stand here, you can just manage to see it. I had it over the mantelpiece, but he wouldn't let it stay. Why is he haunted by his paintings? I'm so... I'm like, did he not paint them? I was just going to say, did he have someone else do it? Yeah, is he like the Millie Vanilli of uh, painting? And he quit when the person who was actually doing it died? Or the the guy that's now under him is like his student was doing it the whole time or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very intrigued about why he stopped painting. (laughs) It's like, Mm. mm mm-hmm, and he doesn't want to see any of them. Yeah. That's if my theory only, is he's a Millie Vanilli. If only Millie Vanilli had retired to the Riviera before Blame It on the Rain. Well, but, you know, blame it on the greed because they wanted more money, I guess. <laughs> blame it on the rain. Yeah, yeah. Blame it on the stars that burn. It's a catchy fucking song. How much you got? That's all I got. All right. No, this is as much vocal gymnastics as I have right now. Oh, no, I meant how much of the song. Oh, I know more of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I could just manage to see it. The first portrait of Jack's I had ever had to strain my eyes over. Usually, they had a place of honor, say the central panel in a pale yellow or rose Dewberry drawing room. Dewberry. (laughs) (laughs) Or a rose dingleberry room. Dingleberry room. <laughs> Please, come into my dingleberry room. <laughs> Hello, welcome to my room full of rose-scented dingleberries and this one painting. And next next door is the dewberry room. <laughs> do, do. Or a monumental easel placed so that it took the light through curtains of old Venetian point. The more modest place became the better picture. Yet, as my eyes grew accustomed to the half-light, all the characteristic qualities came out, all the hesitations disguised as audacities, the tricks of prestidigitation by which, with such consummate skill, he managed to divert attention from the real business of the picture to some pretty irrelevance of detail. Mrs. Gisburn presenting a neutral surface to work on, forming, as it were, so inevitably the background of her own picture, had lent herself in an unusual degree to the display of this false virtuosity. (coughs) The picture was one of Jack's strongest, as his admirers would have put it. It represented, on his part, 
a swelling of muscles, a congesting of veins, a balancing, straddling, and straining that reminded one of the circus clown's ironic efforts to lift a feather. If you took that sentence out of context, it sounds like someone's getting an erection. <laughs> swelling muscles. The swelling of muscles. Congesting, congesting veins, of veins. A balancing, straddling, and straining that remained one of the circus clown's ironic efforts to lift a feather. Well, we don't know what pose <laughs> Mrs. Gisburn is in. <laughs> Surprise! It met, in short, at every point the demand of a lovely woman to be painted strongly because she was tired of being painted sweetly, and yet not to lose an atom of the sweetness. So she's standing there, like, with her hands she's on Wonder her hips, Woman. like, I am very strong, but I'm very sweet. It's the last he painted, you know, Mrs. Gisburn said with pardonable pride. The last but one, she corrected herself. But the other doesn't count because he destroyed it. Oh my God, she like, her, her, she, her, her uh, face made him want to stop painting forever. That's sad. Dis or, or the next one, yeah. Destroyed it? I was about to follow up this clue when I heard a footstep and saw Jack himself on the threshold. As he stood there, his hands in his pockets of his velveteen coat, the thin brown waves of hair pushed back from his white forehead, his lean, sunburnt cheeks furrowed by a smile that lifted the tips of a self-confident mustache. He's got a mustache! Good. Finally! It's been a while. Characters should have mustaches. They sure frickin' should. Uh, I felt to what a degree he had the same quality as his pictures. The quality of looking cleverer than he was. <laughs> his wife glanced at him deprecatingly, but his eyes traveled past her to the portrait. A Mr. Rickman wanted to see it, she began, as if excusing herself. He shrugged his shoulders, still smiling. Oh, I've been thinking this was a female the whole time. And it's we, because it's this happened during Miss Mary Pass. Happened last time, too, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was because they didn't gender their, the narrator until, yeah. like, pages in. I, because of what happened last time, I was assuming it was a man yeah. this time. because Miss Mary Pass was like a ghost story. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, I, I literally was just th imagining a woman, like, having this conversation. <laughs> nope. I'm one, I, and we talked about this last time, but we think she did that because the male voice was the male, like, that was the, was the, dominant, the dominant voice, the yeah. Time, so, she well, could tell, she could tell Stories with specific viewpoints better if the narrator was a male. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or be seen as more of a Quotey Fingers neutral author. Yeah, exactly. Well, when uh, when I adapt this story into a short play, the the narrator character will be non-binary and it won't matter. There you go. <sighs> Unless it does. I don't know what's about Unless to Unless it does. We'll see. <laughs> he shrugged his shoulders. Oh, Rickman found me out long ago, he said lightly, then passing his arm through mine. Come and see the rest of the house. He showed it to me with a kind of naive suburban pride. The bathrooms, the speaking tubes, the dress closets, the trouser presses, all the complex simplifications of a millionaire's domestic economy. And whenever my wonder paid the expected tribute, he said, throwing out his chest a little, Yes, I really don't see how people manage to live without that. 
So he went from being a poor painter who everyone worshipped, and now he's like, oh, I love all my stupid shit that no one yes, needs. Yes, I really don't understand how anybody survives without, without a three-car garage yeah. and two extra Teslas. And a speaking tube, whatever the hell that is. Is that like... Do you know what a speaking tube is? Is that like cups with a string on it? Basically, yeah. It's, so it's it's a way that it's, it's a slight advancement on the ring a bell for the servant. Yeah. Where you can still ring the bell, but then you can like communicate directly what it is you want so to it's another. So it's like a really nice version of the like Dixie cups with a yeah. string. Yeah, effect. it's it's oh, an in-house fun. sort of intercom system. Love that. Yeah. How does one live without that? <laughs> well, it was just the end one might have foreseen for him. Only he was through it all and in spite of it all, as he had been through and in spite of his pictures, so handsome, so charming, so disarming, that one longed to cry out, Be dissatisfied with your leisure, as once one had longed to say, Be dissatisfied with your work. But with the cry on my lips, my diagnosis suffered an unexpected check. This is my lair, he said, leading me into a dark, plain room at the end of the florid vista. Well, that's fucking terrifying. This is my lair. I'm Batman. Yeah. That's he had to retire because the Joker was on to him. <laughs> this is my lair. Basically, this is my man cave, I think, is what we're about to go to. Yes, but I until but until it is otherwise described, it's the Bat Cave. It's the Bat Cave, and they're oh, going. Yeah. He he had to pull uh the like a the book. bust of a statue. Yeah, and it opened up a bookcase, and they took a fireman's pole down into the Bat Cave. Yeah, absolutely. And he goes, "This is my lair." This is my lair. <laughs> he said, leading me into a dark, plain room at the end of the florid vista. It was square and brown and leathery. No leathery. effects. No bric-a-brac. None of the air of posing for reproduction in a picture weekly. Above all, no least sign of ever having been used as a studio. The fact brought home to me the absolute finality of Jack's break with his old life. Don't you ever dabble with paint anymore, I asked, still looking about for a trace of such activity. Never, (laughs) he said briefly. I love that his voice has now changed. Oh, he's Batman now. Now he sounds like me when, I, when I'm sitting. <laughs> it's like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> or watercolor or etching? His confident eyes grew dim and his cheeks paled a little under their handsome sunburn. Never think of it, my dear fellow, any more than if I'd never touched a brush. <laughs> And his tone told me in a flash that he never thought of anything else. I moved away, instinctively embarrassed by my unexpected discovery, and as I turned, my eye fell on a small picture above the mantelpiece, the only object breaking the plain oak paneling of the room. Oh, by Jove, I said. That's a swear word. Is Holy it? fuck. It is like Jove, like that's like Jove, saying, oh my God. Yeah, it's oh my God. Yeah. So it's holy fuck. I like that better. <laughs> oh, by Jove. By Jove. It was a sketch of a donkey. <laughs> an old tired ass standing in the rain <laughs> under a wall. It doesn't say ass, but I like it like that. <laughs> I like it like that. An old 
tired ass. I like it like that. Shake that ass. Shake that ass. I like it like that. I want so. I want so. Like it like that. <laughs> In a dingleberry hole. <laughs> There you are, campers. We got you your song. I, I, it came out. Knew it would happen eventually. <laughs> By Jove, a Stroud, I cried. He was silent, but I felt him close behind me, breathing a little quickly. What a wonder! Made with a dozen lines, but on everlasting foundations. You lucky chap. Where did you get it? He answered slowly. Mrs. Stroud gave it to me. <laughs> uh, I didn't know you even knew the Strouds. He was such an inflexible hermit. I didn't till after. She sent for me to paint him when he was dead. Oh. When he was dead? You. Oh, shit. Did he? The last painting he did was of a dead guy? Is he haunted? Oh, fuck. <laughs> It's another ghost story. Whoa, this just took a weird turn. <laughs> I must have let a little too much amazement escape through my surprise, for he answered in a deprecating laugh. <laughs> yes, she's an awful simpleton, you know, Mrs. Stroud. Her only idea was to have him done by a fashionable painter. Ah, poor Stroud. She thought it the surest way of proclaiming his greatness, of forcing it on a pure-blind public. And at the moment, I was the fashionable painter. Huh, poor Stroud, as you say. Was that his history? That was his history. She believed in him, gloried in him, or thought she did. But she couldn't bear to not have all the drawing rooms with her. She couldn't bear the fact that on varnishing days one could always get near enough to see his pictures. Poor woman. She's just a fragment groping for other fragments. Stroud is the only hole I ever knew. <laughs> that sounds really nasty. Stroud is the only hole I ever knew. <laughs> Aren't you married? <laughs> Groping for fragments. It's <laughs> the only hole I ever knew. <laughs> you ever knew, but you just said Gisborne had a curious smile in his eyes. Oh, I knew him, and he knew me. Only it happened after he was dead. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, hey, Gisborne? Necrophilia is a crime. <laughs> the only hole I ever knew. <laughs> and he was dead in my lair. <laughs> I dropped my voice instinctively. When she sent for you? Yes. Quite insensible to the irony. She wanted him vindicated. And by me. He laughed again and threw back his head to look up at the sketch of the donkey. There were days when I couldn't look at that thing, couldn't face it, but I forced myself to put it here, and now it's cured me. Cured me. That's the reason I don't dabble anymore, my dear Rickman. 
or rather, Stroud himself is the reason. For the first time, my idle curiosity about my companion turned into a serious desire to understand him better. <laughs> He's like, what are you talking about, dude? I wish you'd tell me how it happened, I said. I really wish you wouldn't, because I've chosen a voice that's going to be gnarly if I have to monologue in it. You're going to have to monologue <clears throat> in it. You can slowly lighten it up. Because <laughs> he's cured now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can let that one go. He's about to talk a lot. <laughs> we'll see. He wasn't he's, Batman at the beginning. You're he stood... I don't think he talked much in the beginning. He said a couple things. Yeah. He stood looking up at the sketch and twirling between his fingers a cigarette he'd forgotten to light. Suddenly, he turned toward me. I'd rather like to tell you, because I've always suspected you of loathing my work. Ooh. I made a deprecating gesture, which he negatived with a good-humored shrug. Oh, I didn't care a straw when I believed in myself, and now it's an added tie between us. He laughed slightly, without bitterness, and pushed one of the deep armchairs forward. There, make yourself comfortable. Here are the cigarettes, if you like. He placed them at my elbow and continued to wander up and down the room, stopping now and then beneath the picture. How it happened... I can tell you in five minutes, and it didn't take much longer to happen. I can remember now how surprised and pleased I was when I got Mrs. Stroud's note. Of course, deep down, I had always felt there was no one like him. Only I had gone with the stream, echoed the usual platitudes about him, till I half got to think he was a failure, one of the kind that are left behind. By Jove, and he was left behind, because he had come to stay. The rest of us had to let ourselves be swept along or go under, but he was high above the current on everlasting foundations, as you say. If I was his friend right now, I'd be like, I, that did not help me at all. Would you please fucking explain what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah, can, can we try again? He's like, damn. Well, I went off to the house in my most egregious mood, rather moved, Lord forgive me, at the pathos of poor Stroud's career of failure being crowned by the glory of my painting him. Of course, I meant to do the picture for nothing. I told Mrs. Stroud so when she began to stammer something about her poverty. I remember getting off a prodigious phrase about the honor being mine. Oh, I was princely, my dear Rickman. I was posing to myself like one of my sitters. Then I was taken up and left alone with him. I had sent all my traps in advance, and I had only to set up the easel and get to work. He had been dead only 24 hours, and he died suddenly of heart disease, so that there was no preliminary work of destruction. His face was clear and untouched. I had met him once or twice years before, and thought him insignificant and dingy. Now I saw that he was superb. I hate this tradition of, like, you can find, you can, like, find them in old antique stores and stuff, but, like, the whole, like, picture of dead people, like, once they're dead, like, yeah. in, like, poses and stuff. It's so creepy. It's, it's a little unsettling. It's just, 
like, I don't know. It's real morbid. I know there was, like, a reason for it, I'm sure. Like, Well, and the idea is, you know, you're trying to get a, something to remember, remember them by. I know, but take more pictures with <laughs> Like, I know pictures were not easy to come by yeah. then. That, that was the thing. But, yeah, you find those books, <clears throat> like, in antique stores, and you're like, you don't realize they're all dead until like, you realize. And you're like, oh, yep. my God. Oh, my God. No. All right, so now he's painting a dead guy. Okay. I was glad at first with a merely aesthetic satisfaction, glad to have my hand on such a subject. Then his strange lifelikeness began to affect me queerly. As I blocked the head in, I felt as if he were watching me do it. The sensation was followed by the thought, if he were watching me, what would he say to my way of working? My strokes began to go a little wild. I felt nervous and uncertain. Once, when I looked up, I seemed to see a smile behind his close grayish beard, as if he had the secret and were amusing himself by holding it back from me. That exasperated me still more. The secret? Why, I had a secret worth twenty of his. I dashed at the canvas furiously and tried some of my bravura tricks, but they failed me. They crumbled. I saw that he wasn't watching the showy bits. I couldn't distract his attention. He just kept his eyes on the hard passages between. Those were the ones I had always shirked or covered up with some lying paint. And how he saw through my lies. I looked up again and caught sight of that sketch of the donkey hanging on the wall near his bed. His wife told me afterward it was the last thing he had done, just a note taken with a shaking hand, when he was down in Devonshire recovering from a previous heart attack. Just a note. But it tells his whole history. There are years of patient, scornful persistence in every line. A man who had swum with the current could never have learned that mighty upstream stroke. I turned back to my work and went on groping and muddling. Then I looked at the donkey again. I saw that when Stroud laid the first stroke, he knew just what the end would be. He had possessed his subject, absorbed it, recreated it. When had I done that with any of my things? They hadn't been born of me. I had just adopted them. Hang it, Rickman. With that face watching me, I couldn't do another stroke. The plain truth was, I didn't know where to put it. I had never known. Only with my sitters and my public, a showy splash of color had covered up the fact. I just threw paint into their faces. Well, paint was the one medium those dead eyes could see through, see straight to the tottering foundations underneath. Don't you know how, in talking a foreign language, even fluently, one says half the time not what one wants to, but what one can? Well, that was the way I painted. And as he lay there and watched me, the thing they called my technique collapsed like a house of cards. 
He didn't sneer, you understand, poor Stroud. He just lay there quietly watching. And on his lips, through the gray beard, I seemed to hear the question. Are you sure you know where you're coming out? If I could have painted that face with that question on it, I should have done a great thing. The next greatest thing was to see that I couldn't, and that grace was given me. But oh, at that minute Rickman was there anything on earth I wouldn't have given to have Stroud alive before me and hear him say, it's not too late, I'll show you how. He's got some serious fucking imposter syndrome right <laughs> Yup. <clears throat> it was too late. It would have been even if he'd been alive. I packed up my traps and went down and told Mrs. Stroud. Of course, I didn't tell her that. And it would have been Greek to her. I simply said I couldn't paint him, that I was too moved. She rather liked the idea. She's so romantic. It was that that made her give me the donkey. But she was terribly upset at not getting the portrait. She did so want him done by someone showy. At first, I was afraid she wouldn't let me off. And at my wit's end, I suggested Grindle. Yes, it was I who started Grindle. I told Mrs. Stroud he was the coming man. And she told somebody else, and so it got to be true. And he painted Stroud without wincing, and she hung the picture among her husband's things. He flung himself down on the armchair near mine, laid back his head, and clasping his arms beneath it, looked up at the picture above the chimney piece. I like to fancy that Stroud himself would have given it to me if he'd been able to say what he thought that day. And in answer to a question I put half mechanically, begin again, he flashed out, when the one thing that brings me anywhere near him is that I knew enough to leave off. He stood up and laid his hand on my shoulder with a laugh. Only the irony of it is that I am still painting, since Grindle's doing it for me. The Strouds stand alone and happen once, but there is no exterminating our kind of art. The end. <laughs> Fuck, that got dark as hell. Wow. Holy shit. Oh my god. I did not know where any of that was going, and that's not where I thought it was going. No, that, well, it was very um, personal discovery. Yeah. This was 1908. Yeah. Where was she in her career at that point? Uh, she had... She's 46. Okay, so she's successful at this point. She's, she's yeah, she's had some success. That's great. Um, but her first novel was only published six years ago. Yeah. Um, and 1908 was when it was published, so this could have been written a year or two earlier. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking there's a lot of- And this of, is like 15 years before her Pulitzer. Yeah. Right. But I, so I'm just thinking there's like, there is a lot in here about- um, Her struggles. Well, about an artist being caught up in the moment 
and being what people are enjoying versus actually creating art that's worthwhile. There's a lot in here that is very, I think you you said imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just, there's a lot of. Well, it sounds, and she went through a lot of struggles in finding her voice. Yeah. I mean, clearly, like she tried lots of different things multiple times that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, she kept going, but like, you know, took sharp right turn and like stuff like that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, a lot of imposter syndrome, a lot of like commentary on popular art. Yeah. On like the rich, like the artists that become rich versus like, kind of the whole uh, the struggling artist mentality yeah. of like, um, we all praise these like certain people that become rich, but what about the uh, all the other artists yeah. out there? Well, and talking about the the sort of the tricks and things you figure out that get you um, noticed, that get you noticed and get you popular, yeah. versus the the work, yeah, the actual like that makes you skilled, yeah, that makes you skilled, that makes you um, uh, unique, yeah, makes you authentic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. That I I was I was pretty convinced for a while that he was Millie Vanilli, and then I was convinced he was haunted, and then I just realized which, he just needs a good therapist. Which, to a certain extent, he is. <laughs> I mean, he's he haunted. is haunted. Yeah. He needs a good therapist. He needs a good therapist. Yes. Don't we all? Don't we fucking all? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Um. But at least he found a sugar mama, so you know it worked out okay. Yeah. It was good timing. <laughs> good timing to have that breakdown. Yeah. For his own, you know, uh, well-being, I guess. Uh, <laughs> hey, wow. what'd you think of that one, listener? Did you enjoy it? I hope so, because uh, you just listened to the whole thing and be pretty shitty if you didn't <laughs> like it. Um, I liked it. I love her writing. I think she's so interesting. Yeah. It's very pretty. Mm-hmm. She writes very pretty. And now I want to go back and listen to Miss Mary Pass because when we start talking about the narrator in that one, now I'm remembering that story and yeah. it was fucked. <laughs> yeah, that, it was very different. Very different. Yeah, very yeah. different. That's why like, I was like, oh, maybe it's a ghost because the last one was a ghost story. Yeah. But writers did love their ghost stories. <laughs> well, um, speaking of the tricks that get you noticed, it was a good way to get noticed. It was, published. A, it was yeah. a sort of flashy sparkly thing that people liked yeah it was very very uh uh of the time yes yeah (laughs) so listeners let us know what you thought about that one let us know your thoughts on miss edith and if you feel like sharing a little something tell us about a time that you have experienced imposter syndrome because we all have been there done that um Please do write in. Let us know what you thought and uh, share a story with us if you want to. And when you write in to either 5050hoursproduction at gmail.com or message us on any of the social media by searching for Campfire Classics Podcast, please include this week's secret passphrase, which is red nose penis. Red nose penis. Uh, that's everything I have to say today. Do you have anything you would like to add? No, I got through it. All I right. only had to like cough up phlegm a few times, which if Ken did a good job, you won't hear any of because <laughs> uh, he did the editing. So thank so, you, Ken. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> Until next week, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf.